CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with over 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. So you are in great company here today. My name is Austin Fable, and I'm excited to tell you about our interview today with Carrie Lorenz. Carrie Lorenz is not only a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, a designated and highly sought after keynote speaker, but she was also the first female F-14 Tomcat fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy. She's the author of Fearless Leadership, High Performance Lessons from the Flight Deck. This was an incredible conversation. Carrie is just a phenomenal and fascinating individual to begin with. We dig into a ton of the lessons from her book, how we can ourselves become fearless leaders, but also what the journey was like to becoming the first female F-14 Tomcat fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy, what the training was like for that, some of the mental setbacks, and what it's like to really be a pioneer in her field. I know you're going to love it. It was a pleasure speaking to Carrie, and we're already in discussions to have her back on for a round two. But first, before the interview, are you a fan of the show? If so, go to www.successpodcast.com today and sign up for our email list. It's the best place to keep up to date with all of our brand new content, get exclusive content for our email subscribers, and when you sign up, we're going to send you our free course called Create Time for What Matters Most. Now, are you on the go? Maybe you're at the gym. That's totally fine. Just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to 44222 today to get started. Again, Carrie was just an absolutely fascinating interview. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. She was just incredible to talk to. And without further ado, here's my interview with Carrie Lorenz. Carrie, welcome to the Science of Success. Woohoo! Thanks for having me here. So you've got an incredible background. I mean, you've really done it all from being the first female F-14 Tomcat fighter pilot to being a best-selling author. You know, to start out, can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about you, your work, and your journey thus far? 
Oh, gosh, yeah. So I was super fortunate, timing being what it was, to be selected as one of the first female F-14 Tomcat fighter pilots. So I was lucky to fly on and off of aircraft carriers around the world day and night. And after that, transitioned to both motherhood and being an author, keynote speaker. I coach uh, Fortune 1, Fortune 500 companies and do lots of keynote events for those Fortune 1, Fortune 500 companies around the world, not only helping them build their own individual leadership skills, but also how to grow and develop high-performing teams. It's fascinating work and an incredibly fascinating background. I'm really looking forward to digging in today. I'm curious, though, did you always know you wanted to be a pilot? I feel like I've got a couple of friends, just a handful, who are actually pilots right now in the Air Force, and they seem like they were made for it. Was that the case for you, or was there a moment where you kind of decided that you wanted to be a pilot? I always knew from the beginning that I'd be an aviator. Flying was in my blood. My dad was a Marine Corps C-130 pilot and flew over in Vietnam. And I've got an older brother who, just a year older than me, we grew up playing with all of my dad's flight gear. And he had bought this bar over in Japan. And, you know, we had these bar stools that were, I don't know, some big wood things. And we'd always tip them over and put all of his flight gear on and pretend like we were in our airplanes with silk maps flying all over the place. So I I think we both knew that somehow we would be involved in aviation. And that path is not always clear for really for anybody. There was a bit more of a challenge for me because there weren't a lot of female role models at all. And at some point in time, I grew up in Wisconsin. And so every year we would go down and we would see, we would go to the EAA air show, which is one of the world's biggest air shows. And you see all these old airplanes and new airplanes and, you know, these old pilots and all of my dad's friends from the military would come in. And we were fortunate that we would always be able to sit kind of around the edges, you know, and they'd start having their scotch or their whiskey or whatever. And they'd start telling stories and their hands would start flying It was so fascinating. And yet, even though I knew the wasps had flown in the 40s, nobody ever talked about it. And so there were really few role models. And as I went through college and I was thinking about it, I was a rower in college and I'm like, well, how can I do this? And I only told a few people about my dream to fly because when I was in school and I would mention, you know, I'm, I'm kind of considering this and I, I don't just want to be any old pilot. I want to be a naval aviator. People would be like, well, well, why do you want to do that? That's too hard. And it was like, I'd get my little dream stomped on right away because nobody was familiar with it. No matter kind of who you are, what it is you want to do, when you think you want to do something, you will always run into barriers about people telling you, you know, why do you want to do this? Or I don't know, you don't seem that doesn't seem like that might be a good fit for you. You have to figure out what is that path going to look like? What is it going to take to get there? And then be willing to do the work, regardless of those barriers and obstacles. It was a bit of a challenging path, but I went to the University of Wisconsin. So there are only three ways you can become a naval aviator. You either go to the Naval Academy, earn a flying slot, go through an ROTC program at any college in the U.S., and then get a flying slot out of that, that designation. Or you do what I did, where you're a regular college graduate. And I went through Aviation Officer Candidate School, which is essentially a 14-week program that takes you on this path from being a regular college graduate to earning your officer commission. 
So it's 14, 16 weeks of nonstop academics, nonstop extreme physical training, and just constant pressure where they are trying to break you every single day. And it's actually, it's kind of cool because historically it's the place where legends were made at AOCS. Neil Armstrong went through there, Buzz Aldrin, John McCain. So a lot of history. It's a very, very intense, extraordinary program that has one of the highest washout rates in all of the military training because it's this extreme combination of drinking from a fire hose of academics, physical training, discipline, all of this stuff. And then if you make it through there, then you're on your way to flight school. Definitely not an easy path. And I think speaking candidly here, I think it's so incredible to hear because you you talk about you know these dreams you had as a kid and you never gave up on them and you always pursued them despite the lack of female role models in the industry you were going for. And now you've really evolved and through your hard work and perseverance, you've really become that role model for people, you know, young women that may be, have been or may be just like you were, you know, that have these dreams and they actually have somebody to look up to now that they can relate with. Why do you think it is that you were one of the first female F-14 pilots? I'm just curious as to why this didn't happen sooner. What were sort of the limitations behind it? Well, there was a law in place that said women could not fly in combat. So when women first started flying in the military in the late 70s, there was this law in place that said women could not fly in combat aircraft. And it wasn't until the late 80s, you know, some of those women who started kicking open that door kept advocating for it and advocating relentlessly because what we all know is that from a promotion and a leadership perspective, if you don't have combat service in some place checked that you've checked that box, you are not as promotable as other people, which then puts an artificial choke point on that leadership promotion pipeline, which means you are never going to be represented. You're never going to have all the voices at the table. So there were these women ahead of me who did not have the opportunity, who relentlessly and at great risk to their careers kept advocating for that to happen. And it wasn't until April of 1993 that they completely lifted that combat exclusion ban. And because that happened actually while I was in flight school, I'd gone through two years of flight school. So the whole time I was in flight school, there was a ban on women in combat. But because I had performed well at every stage in flight school, I was able to select the jet pipeline. You're graded for every single flight, every test that you take. And once you're in primary flight school, only about the top 10% get to choose the jet pipeline. And then, you know, then people are assigned propeller airplanes or helicopters. So the pipeline keeps narrowing and you keep losing people by attrition every week, essentially, because of grades or it's not a good fit. Just about a month before I was scheduled to graduate and earn my wings from flight school was when they lifted this combat exclusion clause. 
And because of my grades, because of my class standing, I was able to, after after much ado, and this would probably be a different podcast, I was able to put my top choices. And because of my class standing, I was awarded the F-14, which was super exciting. I mean, it was the world's premier fighter jet, but I am very clear on that there were women in the pipeline in the years prior to me that had that rule not been in place it could have been them. So not only do I stand on the shoulders of those women who were went right before me, but I will tell you, had it not been for the wasps who flew over 2 million hours in World War II, and then were told to pack up your flight gear, we don't need you here, go home. That is what gives you, I think, an extra percentage or an extra bit of metal inside of you that you realize you are not here alone and but for were it not them flying in the 40s when they were told you're not good enough you're women why are you not here but they were actually the ones who affected our capability to win world war ii i would have never had the opportunity so i want to be super clear on that that it wasn't because oh i'm so awesome and look at me this is fantastic i stand on the shoulders of the great people who went before me yeah, man, I think you just put on a masterclass of really what I think is a perfect mindset when it comes to leadership and, and you know being humble and making sure that you appreciate those who may have paved some of the path before you got there. But also just the fact that you went through this rigorous physical and mental training the whole time, you know, not knowing if this ban was going to get lifted. And then, you know, it just so happens a month before graduation, it does. But to be able to stay that physically and mentally dedicated and sharp knowing that you might not even get your ultimate goal due to some part of my language bullshit ban, but still pushing through, really, I think that's how you find opportunity in life is you you had some uncertainty in front of you, but you did not let it affect your work ethic. You still continue to strive to be the best in your class. And the universe kind of opened itself up at the right time. Absolutely. And I'm not trying to be self-deprecating in any way, but I'll tell you what, I showed up at AOCS. There are guys there who were aerospace engineers. There are guys there who ran four minute, 30 second miles. They were like Greek Adonises. They were built like brick houses. And you look around and you're like, oh my God, I'm never going to run a five minute mile. I'm not going to be able to do whatever, 200 pushups in two minutes but there are things I can do. And what happens is that there are three personal elements that I really would drop anchor on that I think anybody has the capacity to leverage. And that is courage, tenacity, and always operating with integrity. Those of us who, when you're in the midst of it, when you're drowning, when you are doing, you're literally entering our number two of doing jumping jacks nonstop because somebody in your squad did something. Maybe they flunked a test. Maybe they dropped their rifle during drill, but your drill instructor is furious and you are doing two hours of jumping jacks and people are dropping like flies. If you think if at that point in time, your only purpose or dream had been, I want to fly fighters or I want to serve my country and be a naval aviator, that's probably not going to get you through. You have to be able to have this flexible mindset that you keep this dream and this purpose and this goal deep within your heart, but where you in the present can focus on your span of control. And what do I mean by that? You have to be able to understand in the depths of despair and the depths of overwhelm, 
what you can control, what I call your span of control. And that means that instead of thinking, oh, this is way too hard. This is BS. This is not what I got my aerospace degree for. You think I can do jumping jacks for 30 seconds. I'm going to do them for the next 30 seconds. I'm going to prove this guy wrong, that I don't care, that he can't beat the dream out of me just because this is hard. Because too often what I think we see now is that people see this vision of success and they think, I want that. Because as we were talking about offline earlier, it's the yellow Lambo, it's the big house, it's the position, it's the positional authority or their perception of power. But they haven't thought about the work that it's going to take to get there and or that it's your ability to focus on what matters and stay in the moment and make it that next five minutes, make it that next 15 minutes, make it to the end of the day and to be able to dig in and do the work when no one's watching you. It's critical. And it is a step in the path of success that you cannot skip. And if you do skip it, hand over heart, I promise you, you're only going to be at the top of that mountain for a very short time. Yeah, you can't skip the hard work. And we we had a great conversation before we started recording about all of this. And I think it, you know, it reminds me kind of of like the world we live in now. And you and I had a nice discussion on social media and what, you know, that really means for the world. But you hear all about these overnight successes. It's a pretty common topic of conversation, but there really is no such thing, right? I mean, you might hear about how this guy just came on the scene and boom, like all of a sudden millions of downloads and they're everywhere, but you don't see, it reminds me of the picture of Jeff Bezos in that small little office with Amazon spray painted on a piece of cardboard. You know, you don't see that. What you see is the Forbes richest man lists. And if you don't have that dedication to the work, and like you said, truly believe in your heart in what you're doing, you're not going to get through the work. And that's why so many people that post, you know, five social media posts and they want to become a CEO and famous, they get frustrated and they quit because they don't actually, they want the title, they want the Lambo, but they don't have the ability to get down in the dirt and do the work it requires. That's right. And it's this misperception of what work actually is. Like we were talking, yes, I'm on social media. And up until the last couple of months, because we're obviously we're recording this during a pandemic, in my job, I was doing up to 100 keynotes a year. And I only share that for context. And so because I was on the road and I have four kids. So because I was on the road a lot and as soon as I come home, I'm, you know, I'm constantly I'm, I'm on the phone, you know, texting my kids, I'm FaceTiming, I'm managing all of these things. That's not where I put my effort. My effort is put on what can I do serving my clients to generate value, not worried about Oh, have I posted a great picture? How does this look? And ooh, people need to see my super awesome car, right? I'm actually in the trenches doing the work. And so my question, you know, for people when we when we think about success, it's easy to think it's come easy for other people. But at the end of the day, I think everybody needs to determine a couple of things. First, what does success actually look like for you? Not for somebody else, not what you think it should look like, but for you. And then how bad do you want it? And I would put that on a square and put that on Instagram. 
because I'll give you a quick example. So again, when I started flight school, I did not have the advantage of having an aerospace engineering degree or structural engineering degree or something like that. I was a psychology and social work major. I have been an international business major, but my first semester in college kind of got off to a rough start. I had to make things up a little bit for my next semesters. But I'll give you a quick example. When I was starting flight school, and so you've already gone through AOCS, and now you're combined with the people who went to the Naval Academy and were ROTC grads. You know, the first morning of orientation at Naval Air Station Corpus Christi, you know, you walk into the hangar space. It smells like fuel. There are airplanes everywhere. There are all these smart, super fit people, and it's exciting and it's intimidating. And no different than Top Gun, everyone's looking around at who are the people who are your competition, who are going to be your new best friends, who is going to make it through, right? Like who's got the stuff, who has the advantages. And I know it's going to be a lot of work and people are, they're nervous, they're joking around, they're sweaty. And in walks a Marine Corps aviator instructor pilot, a captain, And he starts with all the niceties, you know, hey, you know, he's this buff belt guy, welcome aboard, this is going to be exciting, yada, yada, yada. And then things took a turn. Because sitting on every desk is this stack of books that's, I don't know, foot, foot and a half high. And he starts to tell us that, hey, look around, because in this stack of books, you are responsible for every word, every list, every procedure, and you need to have this memorized soup to nuts in the next six weeks. Otherwise, you're going to wash out of the program. And if you weren't able to drink from a fire hose, this wasn't going to be for you. And I'm telling you, it was crickets in the room. And everybody starts looking around. And then he starts to say, and what you also need to know is probably in the next few years or by the time your career in aviation is done, a third of you will not be here, as in would no longer be with us either through attrition or by mishaps, by dying. And I'll tell you what, there were people in that room who were visibly shaken. And in my in-doc class, there were actually even a couple of people that that reality, the reality of the workload, the reality of the risk, it hit too close for home for some people. And you had to ask yourself right then and there, Do you have the courage and the tenacity to do the work and to grind it out at great risk? Do you actually have that? Your mind is scrambling and yes, you've thought of these things, but now it's, it's literally encapsulated in a, you know, foot, foot and a half tall stack of books right in front of you and understanding that a third of the people around you will not be here. It's that reality and understanding what is it going to take? What does, you know, people, there are all these books that have come out and some, you know, a couple of them very, very good on grit in the last couple of years. But what people don't tend to internalize because it almost feels fluffy for some people or very accessible. I say this and you can beep this out if you want, but I'm like, don't forget that gritty rhymes with shitty, right? That's what that means. It doesn't mean, oh, it's hard. And yes, I know what hard is. It means it's not going to be fun. So the people who inevitably end up being successful, whether it's top performing athletes, top performing executives, top performing parents, realize that work that it's going to take and that each and every day, how you show up matters and what you are focusing on matters. That will ultimately determine what success looks like for you. 
Yeah, I think it's such a powerful message and, and so many insights there in that story too. I mean, just the idea of a foot tall stack of books just gives me a little bit of a shiver down my spine in the first place. You know, so the book is called Fearless Leadership, High Performance Lessons from the Flight Deck. You went through these three personal elements of courage, tenacity, integrity, and I, I want to dig into courage a little bit. We've dug into fear many times on the show. I'm curious, how do you go about preparing for facing your own fears? And then also, if you could define courage a little bit, because I've seen people really who almost at times get mad at themselves for being afraid, right? They're like, oh, like, why am I so shaken up? I don't I have the butterflies. What's going on with me? But it's not always the absence of fear that really matters. So how do you go about facing your fears and what does courage really mean to you? Because it's actually the flip side of fear. It's the first vital element in fearless leadership in not only leading yourself, but in leading other people. If you can cultivate courage in yourself, then you are going to have what it takes to see those limitless possibilities for your future and to tamp down the voices telling you that you can't do it. And whether those are internal or external, and it takes exercising this and understanding that the first step in any leader's journey is accepting the fact that you are worthy of being a leader and that it's going to take you starting from where you are with what you've got and go where you want to go. And all it takes is having that courage, that just that momentary flash of enough to jump at the opportunity or take action when the opportunity comes along. Too often I'll hear people, and this is at all levels of coaching, of guiding teams, of developing leadership on an individual skill set, as well as from teams, people think that that leadership is a gift, right? That it's some innate gift, that some are blessed more than others, which I'll push back on. I think that's more charisma because no matter what your role is in life, you all are engaged in, we all are engaged in leadership on, in some way. And stepping up and taking ownership and accountability of your leadership personally in your career is going to take courage. If you shirk that responsibility or that opportunity, worried that you're not cut out for the role or you're not ready yet, right, which is what I hear way more from women than men, you are going to pass up those chances to grow into a fearless leader. So what I don't ever want people to think is when I'm talking about fearless leadership, that means you're going to be super comfortable, right? Like, hey, I've got this all figured out. No, what that means is you're going to feel sweaty. You're going to feel a lump in your throat or a pit in your stomach or even some verp coming up. And that's okay. Because if you don't, if you're not considering the possibility of failure, if you're not considering the risks, you're kind of crazy, like you better be de-risking things. You better be thinking about that. You can darn well bet your bottom dollar that we do that as fighter pilots. We're not running around with our hair on fire, right? We are, well, sometimes we are, but but we are like high-performing, high-risk managers. So understanding that it takes courage to do that, and it doesn't mean that you have to be brave all the time. It is about you summoning up the courage to be willing to step into the, to the ring, be willing to go after it time and time again. And that does not mean you have to be brave 100% of the time. It's in these tiny moments that we decide to take action 
that will define whether or not we'll be successful and whether or not we'll be more courageous the next time. Because every time you choose to stare fear in the face or stare that anxiety that you're feeling, that sweat, all those things that we just talked about, every time you do that, you feel that and you take action anyway, you build more strength, courage, and confidence to go a little further next time. So true. And I, I want to dig into a little bit more of the de-risking and then kind of the debriefing that I know you've talked about in the past. But I also want to touch on tenacity real quick. Obviously, throughout your career, I'm sure you've hit different barriers that you've broken through. And you mentioned you hear, especially from women, you're not quite ready yet. Explain kind of in detail what tenacity means, because you know I can think of it and think it's just plow forward, move forward, move forward, move forward. And I think of it in like physical context a lot of times. But I imagine that there's some nuance to tenacity when it comes to treading new ground and doing things that haven't been done before and really breaking what are standard norms in any organization. What role does tenacity play and what's kind of the nuance in that? So tenacity is at the end of the day, it's just sticking to it even when it's hard. That's my very non-scientific, but working with high performers, Olympians, top executives, other people in military fields, that's what it boils down to. It boils down to sticking to it when it's even hard. So if you think about courage, it takes courage for leaders of any stripe to think, why not me, and to go for it. But it takes tenacity, once you've made that decision, to keep pushing and keep striving and keep working hard when the novelty of those first decisive moments wears off. It's when that path ahead looks really bleak or uncertain, or there are challenges and you keep running into roadblock after roadblock. So think of courage as like that 20 second sprint, but tenacity is the five, six, seven hour marathon. When you're the last one, right? When they're picking up the cones behind you, just waiting for you to stop. And yeah, and we all have, right, in some way, shape, or form, maybe not at 26.1 miles, but at some some place in life. So it's about having that willingness to keep at it, because if you can't do that, success in any way, shape, or form is not going to be possible. And, and the more tenacious you become, the more you develop this bias for uh, good judgment and action, you have to actually go out and do it. And it's the doing it part that comes first. When you learn to take action, even in situations where you're feeling stuck and frustrated and intimidated, and you're facing what could feel like a searing unknown, you increase your ability to get through situations that demand commitment. And I think we're at a time and place right now where for so many people, there's been this really clear path ahead. If I do this, then I know the next stop is this. And my little business workshop said just to do X, Y, and Z and success will appear. But right now, and I've advocated this with the leaders that I've worked with and people have heard me speak before nonstop. Oftentimes, this is also about finding a third way. And this is not just about being stubborn. But finding a third way means you have to actively innovate and look for other ways to get done what needs to be done. This is about showing tenacity when you feel like giving up. But if we're going to stay relevant, if we're going to stay successful and be able to bring people with us on this journey 
and serve our communities, our friends, our families, our clients, you're going to have to stick with it and do the hard work and be willing to grind it out and stay focused on what matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I love the idea of finding a third way. It reminds me of, we interviewed a gentleman by the name of Alex Banigan who wrote a book called The Third Door. And it really exemplifies a lot of that too. It's a lot of really crazy stories. He like hacked how to get on the price of right and do all these things. But his message was was very similar. It's just that, you know, when traditional ways don't work, you need to get creative and find that third way to get things done. And so many people don't look for those new ways. It makes it even more impactful. You bring business practices from one sector and apply them to another. All of a sudden, it's like, oh my God, you're a genius. But really, it's just common sense in one area, not another. And you're just finding a new way. And one of the things that I always advocate for as well, I call it the 80% rule. And what I mean by that is 80% is good enough. And this isn't like OPEX or Lean or Six Sigma, not the Pareto 80% thing. But I want you to think that 80% is good enough for you to achieve 100% of your dreams and goals. And what do I mean by that? Too often right now, and again, when it comes to even de-risking things, we think that we need everything to be perfect before we launch. We think we have to have our marketing campaign perfect. We think we need to have the perfect fitness regime. We think we are trying to de-risk everything to the point of perfection. And yet, I will share with you in our fast-moving environment and working in very challenging environments where things changed by the second going at Mach 2. Yes, we've done all the planning, we've done all the preparation, we've done all the hard work so that when change happens, when we can throw that well-made plan out the door, we know that 80% is good enough, we know enough, we have enough situational awareness, and we know what success looks like that we can adapt and adjust as long as we keep taking action and we keep learning. And that is critical. The people who end up being successful, not as a flash in the pan, but over time, the people who remain relevant over time are the ones who have created within themselves and within their team. I don't care if it's team of one, a team of two, a team of 2000 or a team of 200,000, a culture of excellence and a culture of learning. If you are not willing to learn and if you think you have it all figured out and you think you're the shizzle, you are done. I think the the keep learning thing is just so huge. I mean, I think I've said before that I think the, I guess the best superpower a human can have is the ability to change one's thoughts and continue learning. 
So to be able to pivot and take new action based on new information or shift different beliefs. You touched on a ton of things. And I think inevitably, you know, when you're pushing yourself, when you're being courageous, when you're being tenacious, you're going to fail oftentimes. And learning from those failures is so important. If you could just drill down a little bit more, I believe I've heard you in the past call kind of like the debriefing process to make sure that, you know, you continue to learn from each experience. What's that look like? Absolutely. So I'll try to boil it down into super easy and actionable items for our listeners today, because as fighter pilots, man, we need to keep things simple. We study the complex, we learn the complex, but when you're flying at the speed of sound, that's not where complexity can come into play because you need to be very prepared and you need to be able to adapt. So I call this, this is a really dynamic process. It's accessible for everybody. It is what I call the prepare, perform, and prevail. So three steps. Think of it in three steps. Prepare. At the beginning, you are going to plan. We're going to bring people together or ourselves if we're alone. We're going to bring people together. We're going to set up a plan. We're going to craft a plan to achieve and identify our mission objective. In the middle part, so if you think of these as bookends, you know, on the one side you have prepare, in the middle part you have execution. This is when we're actually doing things, right? And we want that to be as boring as possible. We don't want to be firefighting. We don't want to be looking for the big saves. We actually want it to be boring. But at the end, after every flight, the thing that allowed us to be more successful than anybody else in the world is that we debrief. We come together we analyze how things went and we figure out how we can do it better next time. And the debrief is not about trying to figure out who's right. The debrief is trying to figure out what's right. So this is a place, and boy, this is such a foot stomper because there are so many people who could learn from this right now. Because again, this is where we need to be able to set our egos aside to figure out what's working. And it's in the debrief that we quickly identify those things that are working and those things that are not so that we can improve our performance for the next operation, for the next flight, the next afternoon, very, very quickly. The debrief is actually what I would call the fighter pilot's secret weapon to success. And it is how we ensure high performance. I cannot think of a single flight in the military that I finished that we did not debrief because it's your opportunity to learn. So if you are not debriefing both your successes and your failures, you are leaving success to chance because if you're not debriefing after the things that went well, how are you going to replicate it? Because if you just high five, hit the bar and tell each other that we're awesome, how are you going to replicate that? Were you successful because you got lucky or because you are actually awesome? And, or are there a couple of things that ooh, we skirted on that, but we've identified it so that next time we'll make sure to keep our eye out for this so that that's not the thing that takes us down next time. Because, you know, our goal is obviously to be successful as well as to bring everybody back safe and in one piece. Yeah. I think it's just, such a powerful thing to do and a great habit just in general, not only to debrief when you're being successful, but also when you failed, every experience should be followed by a debrief just so it stays fresh and make sure that you actually learn from what you're doing as opposed to just kind of plowing forward blindly and hoping you strike gold again. 
Absolutely. And this is not a finger pointing session. I mean, sometimes obviously in the debrief, you can imagine with fighter pilots, there are a lot of egos involved. Tempers can fly if things did not work well or go the way they were supposed to. However, it's always done with deference and with respect because the goal is trying to figure out how do we quickly identify shortfalls or gaps in performance sooner than our competition is so that we can be better next time. So when you're debriefing by uncovering new opportunities faster, you and your team can become more agile. You can adapt and adjust to a rapidly changing marketplace faster than anybody else out there, which right now is critical because if you can't do that, if you can't figure out how to adapt and adjust really quickly, you are not going to be in business. And we have a very short opportunity to improve your ability to anticipate or make that decision to take action. It's a great tool. We're going to ask ourselves essentially five questions really quickly. What was supposed to happen? What actually happened? Why were there differences? What can we learn? And how do we incorporate that lesson into execution the next time? And we always ended on a high note. Always, always. Glad to be here, right? Okay, that was a brutal one. Glad to be here. And this is not about some Pollyannish BS, super motivational, oh, hey, you know, everything's awesome. So glad to be here, right? You know, tap into my dimples. No, because a positive attitude will not guarantee your success. But a negative attitude kills your ability to adapt. And that is critical. So critical. And Carrie, this has been a great conversation. You've been more than generous with your time and I want to make sure I'm respectful of it. I just have a couple of last kind of rapid fire questions and then I'll give you back the rest of your day. But just thank you again, not only for your service, but for your time today. It's just been such a great conversation, both on the air and off the air to get to know you a little bit. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Glad to be here. Thank you. What is one daily habit or routine that you embrace that you think has had the most measurable impact on your life? I am a huge post-it note fan. And what I do is I net down the complicated into three things. And every day I take a fat Sharpie marker and I grab a post-it note. And if I end up not having one of those available, I'll write it on whatever, but stays visible. My top three most important things. Again, I'm a mama four. I run a business, I've got a team, and I have way too many things that need to be done on a daily basis for me to actually get done. So no different than what we did flying, what Top Gun does every day. Every day I write down my flight plan for success. So I try to figure out what is under my span of control and what are the top three things that if I focus on these three things will move the needle faster than anything else. And I will share with you that right now and in the, you know, we're taping this in a time of a pandemic. So those things have changed. And right now, my top three things are essentially pretty much stay the same with rare exception, but a couple of things, family, fitness, and finances, right? Those are my top three things right now, making sure my kids are on track because we're all on lockdown. I'm trying to get a workout in every day. Biggest stress manager and health protector thing that you can do is try to grab that sweaty workout 
and then keeping an eye on what's happening with finances. If I keep those three things on track, then I know I can still be in service to my clients and providing value. If any one of those three things gets out of whack, I won't be able to have the impact that I'm hoping to make. So true. I think those three things are something everybody should keep in mind all the time. And I couldn't agree more on the workout front either. At least, you know, for me, I find with me and my circle, it all kind of starts at least with that physical health. The mental kind of follows that. But like that big, as you say, you know, that sweaty workout really is what catalyzes most of the mental clarity and purpose behind most days. Physiologically, it does wonders. And there might be some people who are listening right now. And I don't mean that if you're a, a woman that you have to strive to be a size six or size two or any of that BS. Or if you're a guy, you're like, oh, if I'm not in a size 32 or 34, 36 pants, then I'm less than. This has nothing to do with that. I've been baking bread every day for the last three months. So I promise you that's not my goal. It is that actually changing your physical state, getting sweaty, getting your heart rate up, doing some cardiovascular work, it lowers your cortisol levels. It increases your body's ability to fight off inflammation and stress, and it does allow you to think more clearly, which is why I get super irritated even with myself if I get distracted and throughout the day and now all of a sudden I'm trying to get a workout in at six o'clock at night because I know it's not going to be as good. I know it's not. I've been thinking about it all day. And so then I just get frustrated with myself, but I do think it's a big component. And again, you don't have to work out for 45 minutes. It doesn't need to be 90 minutes. I tell people just start with 12, shoot for 12 minutes. And if you get to 12 minutes and you're like, I literally can't do this anymore. I'm so maxed out. You know what? You got 12 minutes in that you wouldn't have gotten in before. So 12 minutes for me for what, and usually if I'm like, ah, I'm going to work out for 45 minutes or whatever the case may be. And I'm just like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I'm at minute number eight and I'm still irritated. Once I get to minute number 12, then I'm like, yeah, I'm already here. I'm kind of sweaty. Let's go. So that's a psychological thing, I guess. I don't know. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's a message we should be preaching a lot more. I mean, you know, like you said, it's not about fitting into your size zero or your 32 inch waist. It's about just what it does for the rest of your mind. You know, I mean, it's just the effects just compound on each other. I'm curious, too. We talked about this. I gave you a heads up. This was coming. But what is your favorite movie? Hands down, Top Gun. I am an unabashed Top Gun fan. I have watched that movie so many times. And I can tell you every place where there's a little disparity or there's something that's not accurate or somebody has sunglasses on and they shouldn't or whatever. And even now, I mean, and I think they might've just taken it off. I don't know because they haven't flown for three months, but Delta has had it on and I love the soundtrack. I'll play it on flights. I'm trying to write or I'm answering emails and I'll look up, you know, the cinematography is awesome and I love the soundtrack. Right. And it's, ugh. It's so awesome. And so we were talking about this just for a second and why it also resonates with me. It came out when I was younger and what was so exciting for me when I got assigned to fly the F-14 Tomcat, I went out to Miramar and the senior guys arcing around the squadrons in different squadrons were the ones who did the flying there in that movie. So now like you'd spy somebody across the, you know, at the O club or whatever. And they're like, oh yeah, he flew in that scene or whatever. And so like, you feel like you're kind of bumping shoulders with legends. It's just cool. Highway to the <laughs> danger zone. Yeah. When I turned 16 and first got a car, that was my, the soundtrack I was playing, which looking back on it probably didn't help the speeding I did in high school. 
No, you can't. You can't. If you cannot not speed when you're listening to that song, I don't know. And I know that even now, I mean, and yeah, there are plenty of other things that get you going, but that first, the initial lead into it, oh, it's a baller soundtrack. It's awesome. You know, they're making a sequel, right? And I also have a couple of friends that have done some of the flying in that. And I'm not going to kid you, hand over heart. And I do not cry easily. I'm a Midwestern stoic through and through. When I saw the trailer to that, I got all sweaty and I thought I was going to cry because I know the cinematography is going to be amazing. I'm a little scared to see the movie because I don't want them to jack up a storyline, but I'm super stoked because I know the cinematography is going to be amazing. And when you've lost a lot of friends in that industry in flying and who gave their lives, I'm just excited for it because it's an honorable way to serve your country. and. It's just, I hope it's cool. I wish they'd make a scratch and sniff movie version because everybody should be able to have that feeling of smelling the sweat and the jet fuel and all that. It's fantastic. Well, with VR (laughs) these days, you never know. We might not be too far. Also, Tom Cruise doesn't really seem to age, so he'll look probably pretty similar to what he did in the the original. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't seem to age. I'll tell you what, though, and this may be a little bit too much information, but if there was a VR version, I don't know that I would see it because I think I'd probably throw up. Oh. I think there'd be too much because my body would think it was there and it's not. Yeah. It get all discon my brain would get discombobulated. So I'd probably just see it in a regular theater. There you go. That's probably what I would do too. So just you know, have the have the normal experience. So Carrie, you've been super generous with your time. I want to let you go after one last question though. If you could give our audience one piece of homework, something preferably that they could do this week to start changing their lives, what would that homework be? Here's what I would do. I'm going to give you just a tiny piece of science. Duke University did a study a few years ago that followed Generation X kids. And what they discovered was that your ability to concentrate and to focus and to ignore distractions is the biggest predictor of success. So here is what I would ask people to take three minutes, five minutes and to sit down and really carefully consider and reflect on what can you do right now that is under your span of control when you shut down social media when you shut down the news what can you focus on that is under your span of control that will make your world a little bit better or your ability to affect a change find a job, make a difference, be able to be innovative. What can you do? What can you look at that's under your span of control? Name three things that you actually actively can take action on and go do them. That's an incredible piece of homework. We usually end most shows asking that question, but I think especially right now in Obviously, like you said multiple times, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I think we kind of started off talking about taking control of the things that you actually can control. But I think, you know, I see it even in my family unit and and the people I'm interacting with. But right now, there's so many things going on in the world that we cannot control, and we're cooped up, and we're tired of it, and we're all starved for human attention. But which can lead to some negative emotions popping up, can lead to some anger, some sadness, some depression. And so really taking the time to do this homework you've just given and sitting down and thinking about what you can control to affect some sort of outcome, to innovate, to make a difference. It's just so 
so crucial in life in the first place, but even more so now in the time we find ourselves. And I appreciate that. And I will share with you, this comes from, that advice is not an off the cuff. Hopefully this will work. This comes from over a decade of coaching leaders and I've seen, and myself, you know, I've seen again and again, that frustration and that resignation that comes with that feeling of being out of control. And so when all of the research that I've done, I'm actually working on a second book that is titled Span of Control. And I so I do not mean this to be gratuitous or, or sales pitchy in any way. It is because I so firmly believe that the concept of span of control can be life-changing in how you can navigate overwhelming change. How do you focus on what matters and how do you deal with pressure? I believe in it so much that, I mean, I have a little tattoo on the inside of my wrist with those three letters. It's kind of like an emblem, SOC, for span of control, so that when everything is going completely sideways, when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel like nothing you do matters, take a breath and trust that you can figure it out, that you are not the exception. If you can focus on what you can control, you can make a difference and you can keep your sanity in the midst of all of this chaos and change. I mean, I'm right there with you and hopefully that's a very easy tool or accessible tool. I shouldn't say easy that will allow people to think about, okay, how can I navigate this change? How can I focus on what matters? Take a breath. You're going to be okay. I promise you. I love it so much. And let me go ahead and extend the opportunity. Should you choose to come back on the show when the next book comes out, we'd love to have another round two with you. And I think it's such an important topic. We could easily spend an hour just focusing on that. But for those who want to learn more, for those that want to learn about your work, learn about your past, possibly reach out to interact with you in some way, where can we go to find you, your work and learn more? Oh, thank you. At carrylorenz.com, C-A-R-E-Y-L-O-H-R-E-N-Z. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram a little bit. I mess around usually in stories, especially when I'm on the road. You can find me on LinkedIn. And my book is available at all, Fearless Leadership is available at all major booksellers and or Amazon. Order from an indie. They'll love you for that. There you go. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. You've been very, very generous with it. Your story is absolutely incredible. You're a role model for so many out there. And just thank you for all the work that you've done, that you're continuing to do. And thank you for the time coming on the show. It was great to have you. Oh, it's been a privilege. Thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate you and the work that you're doing and the message. It's so important. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm gonna give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. 
Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.